Hello, my name is Melissa Hoffman. I'm a public health associate at the Medical Society of the State of New York, and I am joined today by Dr. Craig Katz. Dr. Katz is a clinical professor of psychiatry, medical education, system design, and global health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Dr. Katz founded and directs Mount Sinai's program in global mental health, and he also co-founded and led disaster psychiatry outreach. Dr. Katz is co-vice chair of NISNI's Committee on Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Terrorism Response. Today, we will be discussing the mental health effects the COVID-19 pandemic has had on patients. Dr. Katz, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused a dramatic increase in mental health conditions, both in patients that have had COVID and those who have not. Can you describe the role of physicians in recognizing and treating mental health conditions exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, absolutely. Even before the pandemic, there was a long-standing principle in mental health care, really even established by the World Health Organization, that an important way to get mental health care to people was by integrating it into their regular medical care or for kids, their pediatric care. And it's all the more so the case now because typically, People tend to seek out care more for medical, for physical issues than for mental health issues. So a medical visit, a pediatrics visit, is a key time for, for picking up mental health problems. I think that that's no different in the pandemic than it was before. It may be that the pandemic, to some degree, like any disaster, has made having mental health concerns more acceptable because in more emotional times, it just, it becomes less stigmatized. And so people are more open to it. So in some sense, picking up on COVID-related mental health issues might be easier, both because people are probably seeking out their doctors more out of concerns about COVID, but also maybe because people are a little bit more open to having a discussion about mental health these days. That would be the hope. My next question, Dr. Katz, is, can you please describe some factors that influence how people react? Well, there are a lot of factors that influence how people react to a stressful or traumatic event or even to an event around grieving. I mean, all those things are happening right now, stress, trauma, grief, any or all of the above in some ways to, for so many people. So there are a lot of factors coming into an event like this that can predispose people to doing less well mentally, psychologically. And those are as, as follows. First would be having a, a prior history of trauma, especially a prior history of trauma where it wasn't handled well. I think that that's really important. People may well have gone through past traumas, past extremely stressful events, and, and it went well for them for whatever reason, whether they needed mental health care or not. And then some people even can grow from past traumas. So having a past trauma is a consideration, but again, it's how someone managed it. Also at the top of the list, and probably I should have said it first, is exposure to the pandemic. In other words, how much has one been affected, whether it was uh, through personal illness, illness in one's loved ones, loss of life in the people in one's life, of course, economic impact, disruptions in life. Now, everyone had a disruption in their life in the pandemic. So in some sense, everyone has been exposed. It's such a unique event in that sense is no one has been spared, but it's really the amount to which people have been exposed that's important. But then again, there are all these other pre-existing risk factors that can suggest whether 
someone has what we might otherwise objectively call kind of a small exposure, whether that's enough to tip them into mental health problems. So as I was saying, one is prior trauma. One is having a prior psychiatric history of any kind. Uh, we know from past traumas, we know from data from the pandemic already that having a pre-event, a pre-pandemic mental health problem, pretty much of any kind, makes you more likely to have a post-pandemic problem compared to someone who didn't. Right? It's sort of common sense, but research has also borne it out. There's also the issue of where one's life was at before the pandemic. To the extent that one was experiencing psychosocial problems, problems in one's relationships, marriage, job, etc., that is all going to make somebody more vulnerable to the adverse mental health effects of the pandemic. And then there's also the, the matter of having social support. By far, one of the best factors that can help somebody get through a traumatic event or an event of grieving or severe stress with less mental health wounds or scars uh, is the availability of social support. And, and support can come in so many different ways, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, clergy, mental health professionals, whatever, whatever it takes. So the availability of support, and really it's actually the perceived support. Unfortunately, some people might be surrounded by potential support and don't avail themselves of it or don't feel supported, but that is a, a key thing as well. There are some other factors that are, we would say, not really modifiable. So there isn't a lot we can do about them. I mean, one is gender. Generally speaking, it is felt that women are more likely to have adverse mental health effects from a trauma. That might be for lots of different reasons, maybe simply because women acknowledge it more than men, but there also may be biological reasons, so we're not sure. But that's one consideration. Another would be age. There's some debate around this, but there's actually some thought that middle age might actually put one at most risk because in some sense one has more responsibilities perhaps to the young and the old and are torn between all those things and one's own self-care. Although we also worry about the elderly in terms of the elderly perhaps having already been more limited socially and socially isolated pre-pandemic, even more so in the pandemic. And of course, uh, Illville's ability to comfortably negotiate using uh, computers for remaining in uh, contact with people through Zoom or FaceTime or whatever, it might be an issue too. So we might think about the elderly as well in terms of age. Kids, we worry about, not that kids necessarily are at heightened risk for how they would deal with the pandemic, but it's, it's more that how kids deal with it. In other words, Kids don't raise their hand necessarily, depending upon their age, where they are, you know, in growing up and say, I'm depressed. Uh, they may be acting out. Uh, they may have behavioral problems. They may just get quiet. They may complain about being bored, etc. So kids need special attention just in terms of kind of ferreting out how they're doing, though sometimes they wear it on their sleeves and their behaviors. And one last risk factor is being a member of an underrepresented minority. That is definitely, even before the Black Lives Matter movement brought this to even more heightened attention, being a member of an underrepresented minority tends to set one up for different reasons. They might be socioeconomic, they might be because of unmet mental health needs or medical needs before, but put them more at risk as well. Dr. Katz, just to add on to that question, do you think that the social isolation required by many mandates throughout the pandemic has diminished people's ability to have that social support that is so essential to mental well-being. Do you think that that's contributed to the effect the pandemic has had on people's mental health? I think for some people, it certainly has. It's interesting. I think it does vary somewhat 
amongst individuals. I mean, there are some, at least when I think about my patients, there's been a range of reactions. Some really felt so distressed by the social isolation, but there are others who were kind of isolated before who now don't feel so alone. They feel like everyone's in it with them. And there are others who kind of are socially anxious, who found the hustle and bustle of life, at least here in New York where I am, stressful. And they actually have found that being home has been a good thing for them. Being socially isolated, I guess, is a different thing from, let's say, working from home. But I think some people, it's been okay. And it's hard to imagine what this thing would have been like without, without the internet, what the 1918 pandemic was like for people. Um, who were taking social isolation seriously then. People took it less seriously then than we do now. But if they didn't have access to the internet, I think there's probably more concern for kids, how kids handle it. And there's a little bit of literature that's certainly come out that has suggested that social isolation has not been good for kids at all. Kids, because of their developmental needs, probably need it much more than others. Although, again, I, I haven't seen studies about this. I'm sure the internet has helped that somewhat, but I don't think it's enough for kids. That's certainly why I think the whole school reopening debate, despite the concerns, really, at least from a psychological perspective, should definitely err on the side of having schools open uh, sooner rather than later, assuming you know, public health considerations are taken into account. So I think, you know, for adults, it's actually somewhat mixed. But yes, on the whole, the socialization of the pandemic has not been good for people. But for some, it's been okay. And for kids, I think it's been more problematic. Moving on to the next question, do you think these mental health reactions vary significantly from people who have had COVID-19 and those who have not? I think whether one had COVID-19 or not, it, it sort of depends. I mean, certainly having had COVID-19 and what your experience is like could potentially be quite traumatic, although, and let's say predispose you for having PTSD, for example, uh, because of the trauma of the experience. Although people who slice and dice these things and study the psychiatric diagnosis and trauma. There's been some writings that technically, the by the original wording of the PTSD criteria in the DSM-5, the pandemic technically doesn't meet the criteria. But nonetheless, there's been tons of studies that have come out demonstrating that people have, have had a lot of PTSD following COVID-19. And these have been studies that have looked so far, have gone out as much as six months after. So I think that that is definitely a, a real consideration. On the other hand, there have been studies looking at community samples and examining their mental health experience in the pandemic. And these are samples right where people did not necessarily have COVID-19, where certainly having had COVID-19 was one of the risk factors, but you still picked up a lot of symptoms of anxiety, clinical depression, insomnia. Those community studies are a little harder to fully gauge because the, the methodology is not always as clear. It's just they're on, often they're online studies where you have to have access to the internet to be able to respond. It's not a, necessarily a diverse sample or representative sample, but it's a little hard to say comparing those who've had COVID-19 to those who've not. And there are, in terms of absolute, who's more at risk? I would say there are also so many other factors like the ones I described earlier in terms of where one's life was at what one as an individual brings to the table in terms of psych history, trauma history, that it's, it, there are, I think, a more complex array of variables that bear on how someone's going to do beyond just COVID, whether they had COVID or not. But on the whole, of course, all other things being equal, if someone had COVID-19, you would be more worried about them. And you'd even be worried about them, even if they don't a clear-cut psych diagnosis, because we know in the so-called long haulers, studies that have looked at this, that 
there's definitely a, a more proneness to just depressed mood, fatigue, and insomnia. Now, whether those are all part of something more, I guess, neuropsychiatric as opposed to psychiatric, who knows? But there are definitely more of those at least isolated symptoms in the so-called long haulers. So you would generally, on the whole, be more worried about those who had COVID-19. But again, it can be more nuanced in practice. Moving on to our next question, Dr. Katz. Besides depression and anxiety, what are some of the prevalent mental health conditions that have increased in patients because of the COVID-19 pandemic? I think besides PTSD, besides clinical anxiety, we certainly see major depression, not surprisingly. I mean, the big three of post-disaster mental health problems are typically PTSD, major depression, and recurrent alcohol use issues. So far, we've seen plenty of PTSD and major depression. We have clinical anxiety, kind of worrying and insomnia. That's been the most abundant. Have not seen studies that have specifically actually looked at alcohol use disorders, but there's plenty of concern in the whole substance use realm about misuse, right? There have been increases. We know this, this has been documented, increases in opioid presentations for opioid overdoses, for example. So that's in the mix. And there's plenty of concern that people, even though the literature hasn't really explored this or there haven't been really publications I've seen on this, plenty of reason to be really worried about all sorts of substance use issues, both because of disruptions in treatment and also because there's so many factors about the pandemic that can set somebody up for a recurrence of a substance use problem. For example, the isolation would be a very big one. If their addiction, let's say, was as opposed to substance, gambling, the, over, the increased reliance on the internet and access to the internet and you would expect, for example, online gambling to pick up, and there's a little bit of evidence for that. So on the whole, we'd definitely be worried about addictive behaviors and also been concerned about eating disorders, in particular, being home so much and uh, being isolated and how people with pre-existing eating disorders are gonna, going to manage all of that. There's concern for that as well, although, again, that's been more speculation than evidence. And there's even been discussions about ADHD. There's, there's an interesting paper that looked at ADHD, not as a consequence of, of the pandemic, but as a contributor. In other words, people who have ADHD that is under or untreated or undiagnosed, there may actually be a greater risk for COVID-19 because they don't follow the guidelines as well. More impulsive. And at least one study of out, of, out of Israel demonstrated that. Dr. Katzen, Lancet today published a finding that there was not an increase in suicide rates during the pandemic in the 21 countries that they studied. Do you have any other, any contrary information or anything to contribute to that? It's a really good question, Melissa. You know, suicidality and disasters of all kinds have always been something that people think about. And in, the, in our imaginations, we always think that in a disastrous event, suicides are going to go up. Historically, it's not been proven ever, actually. There's, suicide rates have Historically, when they've been examined, not gone up. What hasn't really been studied is just suicidal thinking. I've never seen a study that looked at that, which I think probably more likely does go up. But there have even been studies in the past where the suicide rates have gone down. However, the pandemic might be different. I mean, despite that Lancet study, there have been at least two studies I'm aware of that have picked up. There have been some studies that suggested there's been no change, but there are at least two, which are two more than ever existed before of studies that suggest there may be an uptick. One is in, in Maryland looking at the, in black residents during the lockdown compared to uh, non-black. The black residents actually did have an uptick in suicides compared 
And a study out of Japan also showed in the several months, forget the exact time period, but several months, and right in the heart of the pandemic, that goes through this fall, there were increases in attempts both in men and in women, even more so in men. So there have been some signals suggesting this might be different. And what might be different about this event compared to past is, although disasters historically don't cause upticks in suicidality, economic events do. And it might be the economic devastation of the pandemic, less so than the public health impact of it, that might actually lead us to this time see a real uh, increase in suicidality. But as suggested, there's mixed data about this, and we'll have to see. Thank you again, Dr. Katz. Next question is, are there any unique mental health aspects of COVID-19 compared to past infectious outbreaks or disasters? Well, I don't know if it's unique aspects of this pandemic compared to past actually might be on the more positive, optimistic side. By that, I mean we're at a point in history, depending upon where you live, uh, we're here in New York where we have a very good public mental health system. And although there are many parts of the state that are mental health shortage areas by federal designation, we are pretty well off in terms of having mental health resources. So we're actually coming into this about as well positioned as at any point in history in terms of having some kind of mental health readiness. And I think the other potentially positive aspect of this event is the bad thing is it's happening to everyone, but the good thing is it's happening to everyone. And by that, I mean that there's a chance for more innovation around this event, if not to help out during this event, then in future disasters, because usually disasters come, people publish a bunch of studies about how much PTSD there was, not a big surprise, there's a lot because that's what happens after a trauma. You don't really need to do research on it, but people do and journals publish it. But what doesn't get done is studies about interventions, how to most help people, especially right after a trauma. Because what you want to do is find like the mental health version of like a sublingual nitroglycerin that you could give somebody that would help them, help strengthen them and protect them so that they don't go on to have PTSD, major depression, or start drinking again. And that is something that has been a huge gap in our treatment portfolio in mental health forever. But there have been a few studies that have come out that looked at short-term interventions, immediate interventions that have been preventative. They actually have not been relying on very technical things. They're working on basic mindfulness and basic psychotherapy. So I think we're going to be able to learn from this in a way that we haven't, given that the state that we have a big research machine out there that can study in a way that hasn't ever been done before in medical history. And we have a lot of mental health professionals that are looking at this. So this will help some people now, but I also think it will help society in the future. And my final question today, Dr. Katz, is are there any resources you can recommend to physicians to assist their patients who are struggling with mental health effects of COVID-19? Well, I think there are plenty of websites out there that have a lot of information about COVID-19 and mental health. And I would have to say, though, I wouldn't worry about getting too complicated with it. Like if you're a physician and you screen your patients for major depression with, say, the Patient Health Questionnaire 9, which a lot of physicians use in primary care, or the JD7 that screens for general anxiety, if you do like one of those, but I'd say particularly the PHQ2 or 9, and do that, you are probably going to pick up a lot of problems. You're also going to at least create a window for patients to talk about their mental health with you to the extent that you have time in your practice to do that. If you're doing that before, I would keep doing it and maybe do it a little bit more frequently now. If you weren't doing it before, here's the opportunity. 
So I don't think you have to get like super complicated and feel like this is going to be too cumbersome. But if you do want to look at information that's out there that's specific to COVID-19 and mental health, and you want to drill down to, into that respect, I mean, you know, the American Psychiatric Association has plenty of information there. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry will have plenty of information at their website. Uh, for kids, there's also the National Child Trauma Network, NCTCN, I think it is. They have fantastic information about trauma in kids, even pre-pandemic, that you can go to and, and read about. I would think I would start with those places, but you don't really have to get too complicated. You know, MISNI has a pre-existing number of modules on mental health and disaster that we put together that are available at the website. Those would be great places. If you haven't done those before, um, this would be a nice opportunity to do them and kind of bone up a little bit on mental health in general and mental health and disasters, and it will have great application right now. Thank you, Dr. Pat, so much for that invaluable information. We encourage everybody listening to go to the MISNI CME website, cme.misni.org, and check out all of our CME courses that are available, and especially those that deal with mental health and disaster. Thank you.